0: Welcome to the Great South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host and elder at Great South Bay. Each week we have a QA conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology and we get into the Bible. And we discuss practical ways to live out our faith as Christians in the Silicon Valley and beyond. Today we continue our conversation on a sermon series in Galatians. In a sermon titled The Narrow Path to Freedom, Pastor Stephen looks at how the gospel sets us free while other religions enslave. We'll discuss the difference between achieving and receiving our self-identities, and why Christianity is not about following a bunch of rules. All that and more is on the table today as we dive into Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through 31. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. So Stephen, the title of your sermon is The, the Narrow Path to Freedom. So l- let's start there. What is The Narrow Path to Freedom?
1: Yeah, Paul uh, puts it in a very uh, unique way in verse 9 of this passage. He says that um, freedom comes when you know God, or rather, are known by God. And as I ex- explained in my sermon, he doesn't correct himself because uh, he was wrong in the first place, Uh, But in order to show that this is a relationship that you have with the one true living God, Um, Mm -hmm. and that's the narrow path, is being in this relationship where you know God and God knows you, Um, and it's his initiative, he's the one who starts and confirms and upholds this relationship, which is why Paul says, rather being known by God, because the emphasis, the strength, the reliability, all is on God's part. Um, Which brings us to the question, how do you get that relationship? Like, What do you have to do? Um, And that's actually the the narrowest part. Um, You can't do anything other than receive what God has already done for you. In fact, you have to abandon all attempts to please Him, to earn it, Mm. to be good, to show that you deserve what He has done on your behalf, that being the Perfect obedience of Jesus and His sacrificial death and bodily resurrection from the dead. You simply receive those things mm-hmm. and rest upon them alone, and that's the reason that it's narrow. Um, you know, it, it it's hard for us because uh, when we hear the word narrow, we think of exclusive uh, in the terms of like preventing people from. From participating in this relationship, or or mm-hmm. um, it's not open to everybody. That and that's that's the kind of uh, tension that comes with the word narrow. Um, and I think it's uh, the the reality is it's not narrow in that way, right? The way to to freedom, the way to God, is open to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is that way is is small. There's only one path through receiving Jesus's work, and it's really hard. Um, right, It's a challenge to each of us in, in different ways uh, because there are no ends uh, to the ways we attempt to earn or make up uh, our righteousness with God. Mm-hmm. right? If you uh, don't believe in God, then it's the universe or right to be to be right, to be one in in, in with creation, whatever you want to say. Um, we all come up with all these different ways to make our relationship right, to be good, to be upright. Um, and we we have so many different pa- plans and paths to do that, um, mm-hmm. but what God says is, there's only one way. There's only one way to be right, to be in a relationship with me. Um, you, you might try all these different other things, but there's only one, and that's receiving and resting upon what Jesus has done. And so in that
0: regard, it's narrow. So I could see people who are not believers already... You know, uh, criticizing this uh, this idea and being upset by it, like why would God make the path to Him narrow instead of broad?
1: Yeah, that's a great uh, question, and I don't know that any of us have the ability to fully answer why uh, mm-hmm. God would make it narrow instead of broad. Um, and I, I think I think it's important for us to to remember that the gate. To the narrow path is wide. Everybody can walk through the gate. Hmm. Um, everybody is welcome, right? Jesus didn't die for one group of people. As we see Paul mention many times, and I actually argue for in this letter, anyone is welcome to come to Jesus and to walk this narrow road. Um, and I think I, we get kind of technical when you talk about how salvation could be achieved for sinners, um, and the, the reality is our sin separating us from God requires some kind of atonement, right? There is a punishment mm-hmm. for sin. Um, that punishment is death. In the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to give Israel, my people, away to see what their sin costs, and that is the sacrificial system. So they brought animals, they slaughtered the animals, they burned some of the pieces on the altar, the priest ate some of the pieces, whatever... Um, and that was a reminder of the fact that sin deserves death. The only way that uh, something dying could actually take away the sins of a human, right? The book of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats could never make up for the sins of humans. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the only way that a blood sacrifice could make up for the sins of another human would be for a human to die, right? And, Mm -hmm. And if that human had any sin at all then he would be dying or she would be dying for their own sin. And so a perfect, sinless human had to die in order to take away the sins of other humans, right? In order to Mm -hmm. reestablish this perfect relationship with God, which means that um, there has to be a sinless human. Well, there never has been a sinless human since uh, Adam fell and and imputed his sin nature to all of us, Mm -hmm. which means that God himself um, must... Be the only sinless uh, being that could become human and die for us, right? There's there's a whole bunch of like technical workings of the co- like the the way that salvation works for us. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't answer the question why. It just answers the question how. And so I think one of the things that you see is God. God has has worked this path for us to come back to Him out from before the creation of the world, right? We call it the covenant of redemption where the Mm -hmm. god the son god the father and god the holy spirit agreed like hey we're gonna do this and it's gonna it's going to go poorly humans are gonna fall they're gonna sin and we're gonna have to make up for it by um becoming human living perfectly sinlessly and dying unjustly in order to bring some of them back to us and um uh, the The reason that God chose to do that is because it's in His nature to love, and in mm-hmm. His nature to sacrifice, and in His nature to uh, seek His own glory, right? This, mm-hmm. this action of Jesus' is glorifying to God in and of itself, and it brings us to a place where we can glorify God, and so, you know, I, I think that's the best answers that we can come up with, but you know, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we'll have uh, eternity to ask Him more about that.
0: Yeah, Amen. Uh, so it it's it's Christianity offers a really different way of doing this, right? This all other religions have this idea of us working to uh, get to God, and yet Christianity says that God reached down uh, to us. So. Um, there, a, a big theme in Galatians is about freedom in Christ, so I want to talk just for a second about how how other philosophies and religions enslave us compared to the freedom that we have in, in Christ.
1: Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail right on the head, right? Other, all other philosophies and all other religions give you uh, ways to work harder to achieve a certain status or state or spiritual level, right? Mm-hmm. Following Jesus is unique because it puts all the responsibility and hope and results on Jesus, right? It's all up to Him. right? He His work has to be good enough to take away your sin, right? His promises have to be completed and fulfilled in order to give you hope, and if He's the one who starts this change in you and is beginning to make you more, you know, godly, more Christ-like, the results are up to Him, right? Everything mm-hmm. else, all other philosophies and religions, turns those things on you, the responsibilities, the outcome. It's all up to you. Are you working hard enough? Are you trying hard enough? Are you disengaging mm. from the physical world enough? Are you giving away enough? Like, steps to follow, uh, paths to take, books to read, hierarchies to climb, whatever it might be, um it's up on it's up to you. So if you want things to go well, here are the steps you take. Here are the improvements that you need to make, the work you have to do. Right? Mm-hmm. And if things are going poorly, it's because you've not done what you should be doing or you're doing what you shouldn't be doing. And that that feels really good and helpful on the surface, right? This is why the self-help section of bookstores are the books are all worn thin and there's yeah. so many different titles because we like that idea of figuring out what to do next in order to move up, to bring peace to to become a better person, to become more self-sufficient, whatever that end goal is. Mm-hmm. Um, but that actually brings us into slavery by saying outcomes are based on actions and so if you're not happy with the outcomes, then you have more work to do. And the truth uh, of the great the great truth of life is, there's always going to be something to fix. Always mm-hmm. going to be something to improve upon. Right? Someone else is going to have a, a better life, a wealthier, uh, you know, bank account. Uh, they're going to have, uh, you know, better, more well-behaved, smarter kids. They're they're going to have something better. Right? Your life is never going to peak, which means you're always going to have more work to do. Um, mm-hmm. And if it's up to you, then you can't, you know, rest. You have to keep working. And so in that way all other religions and philosophies enslave us but when you follow Jesus you know if if you trust that he is the initiator the worker the finisher of your faith your hope all the things you're longing for you you don't have to work he's done the work you get to rest
0: in him and yet that's not what most people think about when they think about Christianity right you you yeah. mentioned that That story, the interaction you had with a guy at a at a wedding recently, and it yeah. was not atypical of the guy says, "You know, I'm just not ready to be a Christian because I don't want to follow all those rules how How often do you hear that, and why is that such a misrepresentation of what Christianity is all about?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I do hear that often I, I don't think many people are like uh well." Uh, attuned with their own hearts enough to be able to say that's the reasoning. Like mm-hmm. for him to be able to say, "I don't want to do this because I don't want to have to follow the rules." Like that's very insightful, um, yes. and I think most of us don't actually have that level of self understanding. Uh, but it, it's there, right? I hear it behind people's um, excuses or questions. the The reality is. The rules of Christianity scare people away. They seem mm-hmm. dull. They seem boring. They seem restrictive, um, and God is is often viewed as someone who doesn't want us to have any fun. He doesn't want us to right. enjoy life. He wants us to to abstain from all the good good things out there. Uh, and to be fair, I think that they are characterizing Christians uh, mm. accurately, um, mm. right? Not Christianity. But I think that that for the past you know, however many years, I'm not going to get into a history d- debate about when it started, but mm-hmm. Christianity, particularly in the West, particularly in America, turned into behaviorism. And hmm. it's uh, all about prettying your cleaning yourself up, right? Like yeah. you 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 go to church on Sundays dressed nicely you eat a, a nice lunch with your family and maybe a few other families, you probably go back to church at night, um, and then during the week, you don't engage in these behaviors that would bring your humanity down, right? Mm-hmm. Gossiping, drinking, smoking, right? All of those negative things, rebellious things, good Christians don't do that. Um, and to to be honest, that... Uh, the voice of the the conservative, um, moralist Christian became mm-hmm. so predominant in our society that many people have heard or assumed following Jesus is all about following the rules, and mm-hmm. they've never been uh, told otherwise. And so, um, I, I I I do think that that's a very credible concern that people have. They're wary of that because. It doesn't seem to be any different than the other philosophies or religions that we just talked about. It's just mm-hmm. a set of rules to follow. Right. Um, and what we see in Scripture is the exact opposite, that it has it has very little to do with following the rules. It actually has all, everything to do with living in a relationship with Jesus, mm-hmm. and what you find is that that relationship then changes your life and changes how you see um, what brings... Uh, pleasure, what brings happiness, what brings joy into your life, and so it's not that you can't engage with those things anymore. Um, you know, drinking, smoking, whatever you want to say, it's those things don't bring you the same level of enjoyment uh, mm-hmm. as they once did.
0: So, if, if Christianity is not about following the rules, um, how do we have a relationship with God?
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is mm. this is the the confusing mixed-up, counterintuitive nature of the gospel, uh, you have a relationship with God when God has a relationship with you. Mm -hmm. As Paul says, God, you know, it's not just that you know God, right? You could know a lot about God and not actually know Him. It's when God knows you, and that's Mm -hmm. when uh, God moves within your heart to receive His grace. You know, there's a... um, there's a refrain of the gospel that I use often, that we talk about often at at Grace, and that's repenting and believing, Mm -hmm. right? Repenting of your sins, repenting of the ways in which you try to force God to love you, repenting of all the bad things that you've done, whatever, but then believing, on the other hand, that God has known this about you and still loved you, that Jesus still died for you, even though He knew that you would try to make Him love you, to do all these good things to work for your salvation, and to live in the freedom, believing that Jesus died for you and you've been cleaned, mm-hmm. knowing you're going to sin again, right? So there's this whole process. The The key to all that is that starts when God initiates that within your heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, having a relationship with God uh, begins when God ignites your heart, maybe with guilt, maybe with conviction, maybe with excitement over what God has done. God starts that relationship, God continues that relationship, and God finishes that relationship on the the day that you die or Jesus comes back and you are with Him face-to-face, worshiping, glorifying uh, Him for all eternity.
0: I think that you mentioned this earlier, that one of the hard things about Christianity is the idea that we don't work for it. And, And it's hard because, especially here in the Silicon Valley, maybe, uh, you know, it's an achievement culture, and people are trying to to uh, succeed at a certain level of success in their life, um, and people are trying to find themselves, right? So, so but what is the difference between achieving and re- receiving our self-identities and worth?
1: Yeah, and we've, you know, kind of been talking about that all along, I think it's a great way to summarize this. I got uh, those two categories stuck in my head uh, from another podcast that I listened to a, a while ago. Called this cultural moment, and they were talking mm-hmm. about like secularism and how one of the hallmarks of secularism is, uh, you know, it's not abandoning faith or or whatever. It actually can involve faith, but it's a mindset shift that uh, produces this achievement um, drive in people. Mm-hmm. And it's very different from um, the the ways that the world has viewed status and uh, you know identity for so long, which is receiving it. And and pre-Christian or before you know Christianity entered the the scene in many cultures, uh, it was receiving what was passed down to you from your parents, mm-hmm. right? Like if your dad was a carpenter and you were born a male, you became a carpenter because you received the identity of a carpenter right Many mm. cultures in fact name the, the the children after the parents because you receive this identity. but secularism comes in and it tells you you can be whatever you want to be and you can you can you can go wherever you want to go and, and your value is based solely upon what you put into it. It's mm-hmm. all about achieving, and, and I think w- what struck me about that that has stuck with me, and I see Paul talking about in this passage as well, is that modern Christianity has been invaded by secularism in this way, hmm. um, and the the ideas that we have about following Jesus uh, have been tainted by this achievement drive, and... So what that means is uh, not, uh, do you follow Jesus? Are you a Christian? It's what kind of Christian do you want to be? And you need to work for it. Hmm. Um, You need to, you know, if if you want to be the good, conservative, um, you know, tie-wearing, Bible-thumping Christian, like, you got to study harder. You got to, you know, not go hang out with these people over here because they're going to ruin your reputation. You need to make sure you're disobeying uh, you know whatever orders that the government push puts down on you, right? Maybe, maybe that's not it though. Maybe you want to be the the woke, um, sensitive, culturally informed Christian. So you need to be able to bend on a few things, right? You need to know mm-hmm. where the culture's voice uh, is louder than the Bible's voice, and you gotta, you know, you gotta know what topics that people want to hear you um, speak about, right? Like this is this is the achieving model pushed into Christianity, Hmm. and it it, it goes all the way down to, sure, you have faith in Jesus, but you're also pretty messed up, so you better work hard to prove to God that you were worth it, that you were worth dying on the cross. You need to achieve, right? You need to go out and share Jesus with 200 people in the next year because of that, you know, the way you cheated on your taxes or because of Mm -hmm. how you treated your spouse or whatever, right? Like, achieving just permeates... so many different aspects of Christianity. The flip side, what Paul is advocating for, and I I would say all of Scripture points to, and what we especially here in Silicon Valley need to hear, is that when it comes to being in relationship with God, your identity, your worth, your hope, your family, your future, your security, everything that you're trying to achieve, you actually uh, have to receive, right? And, And it's really hard to to let go of your your efforts and to stop trying to earn what you want out of life and to see and believe that what God has uh, secured for you on the cross and what God is telling you is true about who you are mm-hmm. is most important is valuable and is enough right like to yeah. be told hey you are gonna you're gonna live this life where Sundays are are for rest and worship, and that means you may not get to finish all your work in a week. That's really scary, right? That's really scary yeah, for us yeah. in Silicon Valley, yeah. especially because it, it attacks our achievement. Um, but this is something that we have received from God as being best practices for us as His children, and so we need to receive that and follow that. Um, and it's it's a really hard thing, but again, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, it's a beautiful thing because it's not enslaving, yeah. right? Like, the fact that God has accomplished this, that He's giving this to us, that He's gifting this to us, when we receive it, we're free. We're free to 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 live as He's called us to live, to accept these things from Him, mm-hmm. um, and not have to worry about working harder to to make them better, because they're the best they could be.
0: Yeah, I gotta tell you, I, I've heard so many people that have come to our church uh, weary from uh, achievement-focused churches where they felt like they were not doing enough, and they come to our church, and we talk about God's grace, and and I, we're kind of a a, a refugee place for, for Christians who have been just battered over this idea that you need to do more to earn your salvation and worth. Right, yeah. yeah. So uh, in this section, Paul offers a fairly technical comparison between Isaac, and Ishmael. Can you unpack that for us and tell us why it's important? Sure,
1: yeah. And actually, uh, I was excited to preach on this passage because I studied it a lot, actually wrote a, a fairly long paper on it in seminary uh, because oh, nice. of the way that Paul uses yeah. the Greek here. Um, and uh, the it is one of the most confusing, one of the more confusing passages of Scripture, um, because it's in- incredibly unique in the sense that Paul uses uh, this word allegorically here. He says, um, you know, there, uh, b- 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 verse uh, 24, there it is. Mm-hmm. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Um, sounds like a word we use a lot in our, you know, lexicon. We aren't necessarily surprised by it. It's the only time in Scripture that it's used. Wow. Uh, and that wow. that's really, um, really powerful, <coughs> excuse me, particularly because uh, we don't exactly know then what it means. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture, mm-hmm. and so the fact that this is nowhere else in Scripture, we don't we don't necessarily have a great understanding of, of what Paul is going for if we don't understand this passage within the context of the book of Galatians. So mm-hmm. um, what does he mean by allegorically? How are we supposed to understand the relationship between Isaac and Ishmael, um you know, when we talk about allegory in our lives today, often we talk about the story or, you know, this made-up story that points to a a different story, right? We might Mm -hmm. say something like, uh, you know, the Aesop's fables are allegories. They have, uh, you know, a story on the surface about animals, but uh, behind it, there's this other meaning, right? Or, or the mm-hmm. the lie the um, Chronicles of Narnia are a great Christian allegory because they have this deeper meaning behind them, behind the actual story. Um, is that what Paul means? Hmm. Um, you know, often in the New Testament, when authors reference uh, people, places, or things in the Old Testament, they're using a technique called typology, right? Where mm-hmm. something in the Old Testament has its own purpose and function within its own story. But it points to a person, place, or thing later that actually fulfills that earlier thing. For example, Moses is a type for Jesus, right? A Mm -hmm. prophet who survives early assassination attempts, rescues God's people from slavery. There's a whole other you know, series of of facets to that story, Jesus is the better Moses, right? He Mm -hmm. survives early assassination attempts, and he rescues God's people from slavery, just in a more grand and more global way, right? Or we could say the tabernacle, for example, is a type of temple, A place where God could dwell with his people, where they could worship him, they could come and communicate with him. Well, the temple is a better tabernacle because it doesn't move, it fixes God's location within the nation-state of Israel. But all of those are actually types for Jesus, God's dwelling place with man, through through whom all humanity can worship and interact with God. Is that what Paul is talking about? Is Paul saying Ishmael and Isaac are a type for God's church and the people in the world? I I don't think either of those are accurate, um, mm-hmm. and, and the way that I, I think we need to see this is Paul is arguing against these uh, false teachers who have come into the region of Galatia, and they are actually using this story to help bolster their message that the Christians of Galatia should be circumcised and become part of the Jewish family. Um, and the reason that I, I think that's the case is Paul just jumps into this story and says, you know that Abraham had two sons. Well, the Galatian Christians were Greeks. There's no reason for them to know that Abraham or Isaac or anybody, like, they they shouldn't know that history. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't know that history unless someone had already been teaching them about it. And so the fact that Paul jumps into this uh, suggests to me that he is refuting a particular um, argument by these false teachers, and so the way that he builds his case is taking their argument and saying, actually, what we see in that story from the Old Testament is God working in the same way that He is working now. So allegory in the sense that when you read the Old Testament passages about Ishmael and Isaac, you are learning about how God operates towards His people, and you mm-hmm. can apply that to today because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means right. that God's faithfulness to to Isaac over Ishmael in the Old Testament should be applied to God's faithfulness to His people now. And so, what Paul does is he he describes the differences between these two um, sons, right? And and mm-hmm. as I mentioned, in the sermon. The best way to see it is visually. He actually creates two columns, and in those columns he puts different people and places and things, and because he's speaking metaphorically, allegorically, he puts um, Hagar, Abraham and Sarah's slave that they use to try and achieve God's blessing, Mm -hmm. into the column with slave at the top, or achieve if you're following, you know, the categories we've established. Right. And with that, her son Ishmael, and then Mount Sinai because what we see is that the same ideas of of achieving the same ideas of earning the same ideas of uh earning God's blessing are found at Mount Sinai where God gives the people of Israel their um the law right and, and mm-hmm. here this is the key is that that helps us understand Paul's argument Paul is not saying hey God told us on Mount Sinai, follow the law, and you'll have the perfect relationship with me. What Paul is saying is, just like with Hagar and Ishmael, the law could never achieve God's blessing, Hmm. and that's why it's in the same column. And then he adds into it the Jerusalem of today, which is his way of saying people who are following the Jewish customs in order to earn God's uh, favor, right? Which are Hmm. the false teachers, saying you should be circumcised, you should follow the food purity laws, right? The the Jerusalem of today, people are are doing what they can to achieve God's blessing. And just like all the other things in this column, they can never earn God's favor. Mm -hmm. The other column is all about receiving, right? It's all about promise. God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. The only way that it gets fulfilled is God fulfilling his promise, right? And they give him Isaac, and Isaac is the fulfillment of promise. The Jerusalem that is above, as Paul says, is a fulfillment of promise. And the Galatian Christians and us today, the only way that we receive God's favor Mm -hmm. is by his promise being fulfilled by his own action. And so it's this, (coughs) excuse me, really unique Mm -hmm. passage of scripture that that we see. Paul's mind at work. This is how he thinks about the Old Testament. This is how he thinks about God's con- continued action towards his people. It It is kind of a, an argument that we might see someone in the middle of discourse uh, talking to other people and just saying, we, we all get what's going on here, but let me connect the dots in the way that God has operated in the past for you. Mm-hmm. So instead of being like straightforward theology here's a statement, and let me back my statement up. Here's another statement, and let me back my statement up. His his mind is being poured out on the paper here for us in a very technical way, and, and his whole point is, God has been faithful from the beginning. When He mm-hmm. promises something, He fulfills it, and nobody can ever do anything to supersede His promise, to, to make Him go, well, I guess I don't need to do this now because you've earned it from me. Mm-hmm. That's never happened. And, and Paul just kind of lays it out in a very unique way, using this argument that these false teachers had already brought up.
0: Yeah, You know, I'm just picturing this letter being read to a Galatian audience, and uh, the guy maybe wishing he had a whiteboard, to yeah. put columns or to draw stuff in the sand to make it more understandable because i i don't know do you think that that the people listening to the the letter being read would have um uh, got it or would have been like oh, i have to think about this for a while
1: yeah that's a great you know i, I don't really know one thing yeah. that i've always thought really funny is uh paul one, one we don't or i don't know how much we'll have time to talk about this but many people think that paul's physical disability was something to do with his eyesight um, and mm-hmm. there's lots of reasoning for that, but but we do know that when Paul wrote letters to churches, he uh, wrote them using an amanuensis, which is basically like a, a, someone who takes dictation. And so right. Paul would, would say these things, and the amanuensis would write them down, um, and so I can almost see him making this argument, like in a tent, like walking around pacing, getting really yes, frustrated right. at <laughs> these false teachers and whatever, <laughs> and the the amanuensis like trying to keep up and trying to write right. as well. I like, can, hey, I'm trying, I'm trying. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, hence the reason, I guess, in one of his letters, he says, uh, well, I wrote this with my own hand. Look how big the letters are. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Like that's uh, one of the, the things people point to, to say something was wrong with his eyesight. And even, you know... He says in this passage, uh, I came to you, and something was wrong with me, and you received Mm -hmm. it. And even though it was obvious that I was physically impaired, you still loved me, and you still cared for me, and received me as if I was an angel of God or Jesus Christ himself. So there was definitely something wrong with Paul. There was definitely something (laughs) that impeded him from living a normal life uh, that was physically apparent to other people. And maybe he was blind or going blind, or something was, you know, he had some kind of sores on his eyes. We're not sure. Don't know
0: well let's let's talk about that because he he's very he was very open with his disability uh, obviously it was obvious to other people um how does this section of paul's letter or does this section of paul's letter argue against the health and wealth prosperity gospel sure like yeah, if, I mean, if, and, if paul was you know a man of faith, why would he be sick right sure yeah.
1: um and this yeah, the surface explanation is super critical of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I mean, Paul says uh, that he prayed to God three times, that he would take Mm -hmm. away his thorn in the flesh, which is most likely this physical impairment. It's this problem that keeps him uh, from being uh, immediately acceptable to other people, uh, causing him great frustration, great pain. And God decided it was better for Paul to keep this uh, impediment, because... It was a way for God to show Paul that in Paul's weakness, in the midst Mm -hmm. of this uh, thorn in the flesh, God's strength is made perfect. Not that God can only work in the midst of our failure or the midst of our uh, lack of uh, completion, but that God can work no matter how complete we are. And so, uh, you know, that I think on this... (laughs) Paul's comment that the Galatians received him as an angel of God or Christ himself as mm-hmm. evidence of their belief in the gospel, I think just just strikes at the heart of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. You know, without simplifying and grouping all of those preachers and, and churches together mm-hmm. under the same exact quote-unquote theology, um, yeah, like, God makes no promises about how your life in this world goes. Right. Um, that's not the point of the gospel, right? Like, mm-hmm. the... Um, The promises that God makes to us, as Jesus says to Pilate, that his kingdom's not of this world, and the promises God makes to us have less to do with our physical realities. Uh, You know, it's not about bodily health, it's not about physical wealth or monetary prosperity or anything like that, Mm -hmm. Right. the identity, Mm -hmm. the security, and the hope that God has secured for his people and gives to us freely— uh, is a our heavenly realities the mm-hmm. the the world to come is what God promises to give to us, um, and and then I think like a little deeper, um, if you really look at the health wealth and prosperity gospel message, uh, it's just achievement driven, right? It looks a right. little bit different, uh, but it is achievement driven. God wants to bless you. He wants to give you a better life. Um, and there's just a few things that you need to do in order to earn that, right? Maybe send in a seed donation, uh, buy a couple other books, uh, mm-hmm, pray mm-hmm. this specific prayer, work through the hierarchy of leadership, whatever it is, right? They're just stepping stones to achieve uh, the, the good life that God right. has planned for you. And, and if your life's not going well, then there, there's something missing, or there is uh, some sin present mm. that you need to get rid of. Um, that all is achievement-driven, God's right. not an achievement God. God is a receipt God. He gives things to His people, and we have to receive them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and I think that's really hard um, for us to to see, and and particularly um, because achievement it ends with the goal that you had in mind, right? If you're if you're trying to shave two minutes off of your mile time when in running, mm-hmm. and you work hard eventually you'll probably get there right if you want to have more money in your retirement account go see a financial planner have them give you some steps to follow in order to put more money into your retirement account and to save for the future and it'll be there right like mm-hmm. that's why the health wealth and prosperity gospel is so like has its claws into so mm-hmm. many people because you know what? The goal sounds really good. The, the best life you could have, right? The, yeah, God right. wants to bless you. And mm-hmm. when you tack onto that, there's just a few things you need to do. Man, that sounds really good. It does sound
0: good. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's empty, right? So if, if God doesn't promise us health and wealth, um, He does promise that He will continue to sanctify us We've talked about sanctification before, but, but how does Christ grow in us?
1: Yeah, uh, sanctification is the right word here, um, and I, as I, you said in my sermon, right, it's a process by which the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and our lives, enabling us to live more and more uh, like Christ, to choose not to sin to choose to die to the world and choose to live uh, unto Christ. And that's a mouthful, and I've heard a lot of different pastors and teachers give really good illustrations of what um, sanctification looks like, of how the Holy Spirit works. But I think my favorite is Paul Tripp, um, who's a teacher, a pastor uh, in Minneapolis, I think. Um, I think so. And he says, uh, the Holy Spirit like moves into your heart, like takes mm-hmm. up residence there, uh, but he's not just happy with the way things go. He wants you to have a better heart, a bigger heart, a more beautiful mm. heart. He wants uh, to completely remodel the place. Yeah. And so he starts to you know do some things here and there. He takes down some of the wallpaper, which is some of the things that you idolized a little bit. Um, you know. And he puts up Jesus wallpaper. Um, but then eventually, in the course of his remodel, you'll find that uh, he wants you to have a, a few extra rooms here and there. And so he's going to have to do some demolition. Yeah, um, and right. he's going to have to take apart some of the long standing sin patterns of your life, some of the beliefs that you had that you thought were, were making a, a place hospitable for God to live in or for you to find your happiness in. And uh, sometimes that means that he has to, you know, excavate in order to build more foundation. Sometimes he does that slowly over time, sometimes he uses dynamite and blows up some room for mm-hmm. this new house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's always working to make it better. Uh, and I to me that's just a great uh, illustration of the the challenge and the difficulty and the frustration and in some regards the the imperceptibility of how the Holy Spirit works because mm-hmm. to us, you know, I, we're we're faced with our sin every day. Every moment of every day. Even the sins we think we're hiding from others, we know about them, and so it's hard for us to believe Jesus is actually growing in me, like the, that. God mm. is at work. Like, why would God want to work in someone like me? And so, it's hard for us to recognize that the Holy Spirit is working, right? Uh, but uh, it's also important for us to see that that God works slowly. He's never been a no, God's never been a, a quick paced God. He's mm-hmm. never like, we got to get this done immediately. We got to figure this out now, right? Right. Um, he takes his time. He is slow, um, and slow. At, you know, as Hebrew says it's not slow, as some count slowness, but God is patient so that people come to redemption, right? So that right. so that everybody is, is changed and repentant and redeemed in the way that they should. And so we have to look to, like, the arc of our lives. If you mm. uh, recognize that something you've done is sinful, that's the Holy Spirit, right? Conviction is a work of God, because people who don't love Jesus don't often care about their sin, Mm -hmm. right? And and that's not to say that everybody who recognizes they failed is a Christian, but the fact that God opens your eyes to your sin, and then it like bends your heart towards repentance, that's God working in you. That's the Holy Spirit growing Jesus in you, because it's making you trust God, right? Mm -hmm. It's making you depend upon His grace, just like Christ did, right? Like, that's Jesus growing in you, even though it's small, might be imperceptible. God says um, that He is the one who began this work of redemption and restoration in our hearts, and He is the one who will carry it out to completion. We don't get to tell Him what that looks like. We don't get to tell Him what's off-limits. Uh, he is the general contractor of our hearts who is, is renewing and remodeling and reshaping it into what it should be, uh, and He's going to do what's necessary.
0: I'll tell you, that's so reassuring that we're not the general contractors. We're not managing this process uh, because if that were the case, it would be, uh, it wouldn't work. Right. (laughs) The whole thing would collapse. Uh, So, so you used an illustration of a cactus in your backyard and you actually posted the picture on Facebook, which it it is indeed a beautiful uh, cactus. Yeah. Um, But I'd say this, if if we're feeling um, more like, the unwanted prickly cactus that you tried to kill. Um, can we be assured that God loves us and that He will indeed bloom beautiful flowers in our life? Uh,
1: yes, uh, but I want to be really careful about what we mean by bloom beautiful flowers. So, right. um, I've talked to a couple of people about that illustration since, um, and uh, in comparing that to uh, the grill, right, so I, I kind of used two illustrations to compare um, achieving and receiving. Right. Um, the the grill, there it was hollow underneath, right? There was nothing there. And the cactus, even though it seemed uh, withered and I was trying to kill it, there was still mm. life in there, and God you know, in the spring, it, it blooms these beautiful flowers. Right. Um, I I am not saying by that, and I don't think that the Bible says that God will eventually uh, make you uh, into a loving, gracious, beautiful, kind person who everybody wants to be around and everybody mm-hmm. loves, that everybody looks at and goes, wow, that's great. Right. Um, that's not what I mean by blooming beautiful flowers. Uh, what I meant by that, what I think the passage points us to is that even if it feels like you are this prickly cactus, like things are not going well. your life is is trying to just tear you apart mm-hmm. that the 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 life that God has put in you will be completed um in the sense that he will bring you home. He mm-hmm. will uh finish out your sanctification and and sometimes. That doesn't have a whole lot of fulfillment in this life. You know, there are yeah. plenty of people who come to faith on their deathbeds or close to it, and they don't ever have an opportunity to, um, to be loving or to be, you know, to share the gospel with anybody or to right all the wrongs that they've done or to, to mend all of the relationships that they've ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I want to be very cautious in saying that God doesn't promise that. Um, God promises that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved, mm-hmm. period. There is assurance there that even if you are a prickly cactus, uh, if you believe uh, that Jesus died for you, that he really rose from the dead, and that He, your sins have been forgiven because of it, uh, you are saved. There's assurance there, mm-hmm. Um I, I, the other thing that i want that i want to say about this uh, and it might rub some people the wrong way there's a l- really good cactus pun for you um, <laughs> if you feel I get like your point. an unwanted prickly cactus <laughs> yes sir um god's message to you is not hey you you're it's gonna get better i'm gonna fix you god's message to you is what uh what am i doing in your life where i would ask you what what is Jesus up to? What is he pointing out to you? Um, you know, like, if you follow the illustration, I was dumping all kinds of terrible things on that cactus to try and kill it. If you mm-hmm. feel shriveled and you feel um, like you're being just completely bombarded from outside by um, things trying to take your life away, uh, ask the question, like, what is Jesus up to? Is he driving you inward to sense the... Um, the only thing you have to hold on to is Him, is He trying to point out to you that maybe you shouldn't be around people who are dumping weed killer on your life? There you go. That's Um, a good... You know, like, is He trying to point out to you that the reason you feel like a prickly cactus that nobody wants is because you are a prickly cactus, and you need some behavior change, right? Like, Mm -hmm, the -hmm. question I think that Christians should be asking consistently when it comes to the new life that God has given us is, I dislike this thing, or this hurt me, or that thing is causing problems. What is Jesus up to, right? It's really easy to move into the achievement question of, what what am I doing wrong, or Mm -hmm. where do I need to change, right? That's not not the right question to ask. Maybe, down the line, it is the right question to ask, but the very first question, I think, needs to be, what is Jesus up to? Because God is at work at all times, we are recipients of God's work, and mm-hmm. so if you are feeling stretched or pained or excited or whatever in a particular area, asking the question, what is Jesus up to, uh, relinquishes your your control of it and enables mm-hmm. you to see that God is the one at work. He's the one who put that, that new life deep down in your heart, in the center of that prickly cactus, um, and He will bring it to fruition on the day that you die or Mm -hmm. Jesus comes back. But the reality is he is still at work now, and so you can engage with his work and receive it to see how he's changing and growing you, um, you know, every spring or every, you know, however the analogy finishes out. I don't know.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it works. Well, I think just the takeaway that, that God is at work at all times. Like, there's never a time in our life as believers where God is not actively changing us into His likeness is really uh, an important takeaway, I think.
1: Yeah, important but hard, right? Like, uh, Absolutely. It's, it's hard to admit that when things are going south, um, God is still at work. It's hard to admit that when you've caused problems in your own life, when you've done things that make mm-hmm. people want to leave you or not talk to you or whatever, that God is at work in your life. I don't, I don't like that. I don't think yeah, any of us no. like that. But it's a promise, right. right? And that's a promise we can hold on to.
0: Right. Amen. Well, Stephen, thank you so much again for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. The title of Stephen's sermon is The Narrow Path to Freedom. It's the ninth sermon in a series in Galatians. You can find that sermon and all our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. You can also find a link on our website to ask questions for this podcast. Right now, we're still streaming our main worship services on Facebook and YouTube at 9 a.m. on Sundays, but we're holding a weekly in-person communion service in accordance with county guidelines. If you'd like to attend that service, be on the lookout for an email from one of our pastors to sign up. Gracious pastors, elders, and leaders are on duty, so let us know how we can care for you. We'll be back next week with another episode of the GSB podcast, so stay tuned and stay healthy. We look forward to our next time together. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.